Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero. I come to you each and every week from my studio in Dallas, Texas. I met my guest today at Duke University last year when I was participating in an event called Biz, um, Birthing a Giant. So I almost said Business Finishing School because we just finished Business Finishing School's event last weekend. Um, but Doug's mannerisms, his methods, his mastery of business was amazing to me. Because everybody in our group at Birthing of Giants had to pitch to Doug. And he instantly summed our businesses up. In like 10 seconds, Doug knew everything that was going on in our businesses. And since that event at Duke, I have become a disciple of Doug's book called No Man's Land. The, the challenge with the book is is that it's probably the most difficult book I've ever read. And not because the book is difficult, but because every two pages, the content just slaps me in the face because it's a, it's a direct reflection of my business growth and what we're going through and what so many other businesses are going through and struggling. Because whether you start from something or you start from nothing, every business owner will be faced with Doug's Mastery. The book, No Man's Land, is one of my favorite books. I tra it's the only book that travels with me everywhere in my briefcase. Every time I'm on a flight, I'm digging back into No Man's Land, and, and I'm being reminded of the struggles that we have gone through and sometimes still continue to go through. So without further ado, let me welcome my guest, Doug Tatum, to the You Need More Money podcast. Welcome, Doug. Welcome, uh, Matt. It's, it's great to, it's great to uh, talk to you again. And I appreciate your generous uh, compliments, but as I told you guys when we all met, I've made all the mistakes uh, of growing a business myself when went through that territory when you're too big to be small, too small to be big. So uh, you could have written a book. Every entrepreneur in there could have. I just got there first. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's a great book that has incredible longevity, too, because the book is, what, roughly 10 years old, and it still has unbelievable traction. It does. I still do probably a speech every other week around the country talking to entrepreneurs. It's a kind of timeless concept, which is the notion that uh, those of us who are, have, have grown businesses to scale, you know, approach a transition point where, as I indicated earlier, you're too big to be small, too small to be big. And uh, the patterns of that are uh, pretty timeless, a bit like gravity. So yeah, uh, I appreciate it. But, Doug, I want to just, for the audience's benefit, I want to just give a little bit of background on Tatum LLC because that's the firm you founded. You grew it to the largest executive consulting firm in America, 30 offices, over 1,000 professionals and employees. And then in 2010, you sold that company to the $2 billion company Spheron. So just elaborate on Tatum to Spheron to Newport. So the... the uh, uh the old firm Tatum, which is still there, it's owned, Spherion uh, uh, was ultimately bought by Ronstadt, was a consulting CFO business uh, uh, to primarily emerging growth companies and then became very prominent with private equity. I think we did over $100 bucks a year just in, in private equity. And um, uh, it was the right time for a variety of reasons to exit that firm. Newport is a, a totally different idea. It's a much smaller firm, but very prestigious boutique firm of a group of, of uh, uh, former CEOs and operating executives. And we're really kind of 
dedicated to helping emerging growth companies get through no man's land. And, you know, one of the things, as you well know, um, that I'm very, very quick to, to tell your audience is that, you know, I, I, I use the fact that I help grow a company to, uh, to scale and, and uh, large to get everybody's attention. But I always remind everybody it's okay to stay small and make money. And uh, that's one of the big big lessons about business is that we don't want to uh, communicate to owner-operator entrepreneurs that the only way they're successful is to scale nationally. Uh, you can stay small and make a lot of money and be very, very successful and build some wealth without necessarily growing your business to scale. It's not for, for every situation. Yeah, we're, we're, I, want, I definitely want to get into the data points that, that prove out that point. Um, but Doug, let's just go back a little bit. I mean, take me, I mean, I, I just think you're such an interesting guy. You, you, you come across with a Southern charm, but, but one below one layer below that you're clearly a business killer. So where'd you grow up? And the most important question I'd like to start with is what was the conversation at the dinner table? Like when you were a kid? Well, it, it's interesting. I appreciate your reference to the Southern accent. I'm not sure my New York partners and friends uh, are quite as uh, <laughs> enthusiastic. They're, they're leaning across the table going, hey, dude, I don't have a lot of time here. Can we just get this out? So, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, my father was an oral surgeon. Uh, he was in the medical, uh, you know, he what they call maxillofacial surgeons. But um, I don't know why I tilted towards the entrepreneur. I was actually trained as a CPA. I am a CPA. And, and uh, went through working at the time, one of the big eight firms that's now called KPMG, hated it. And I just fell in love with the idea of trying to create something new. Just like everybody out there, the first uh, attempt at that uh, ended up me paying uh, my dad back a bunch of money that I owed him for funding a bad idea. But mm. ultimately, I became a hired gun CFO. And then I always give credit to my brother, who I, uh, my career was, was that. And I ended up in my late 20s running a large national firm, which was highly unusual at my age. Uh, went through the CFO, then became the CIO, and then ultimately the president. But he talked me into uh, an idea of fractional CFOs, and we started the firm. And I was chairman and CEO for that for 17 years before we sold it, But it, and it got large. But... Uh, I, I think that um, I'm not sure that, that anybody's pre-wired to be an entrepreneur. I, I would suggest to you that that in many cases, uh, entrepreneurialism comes out of uh, uh, a requirement. Uh, you know, you get fired. Uh, you can't stand working for some company and not seeing them respond to what you think an opportunity is. And then, you, then you're crazy enough to take the leap. So, um, uh, you know, I actually teach entrepreneurship at Florida State University, and they always ask me, you know, how do you become an entrepreneur? And I tell the, tell the uh, students there that, well, if you want to look at it statistically, you go out and get a job, and then somewhere down the line, you know, you quit, steal one of their customers. And that's <laughs> how, how, how these companies get started. And uh, you'd be surprised if I'm in front of two or 300 entrepreneurs, I ask them how many of them started their business that way. 
you know, two thirds of the, the oh, audience yeah. sheepishly raises their hand. <laughs> oh yeah. That's look, we're in the truck financing business and every one of our customers, you know, was a truck driver who hated his boss and said, I'm gonna go do this company better and all they are now is a really great truck driver with this nightmare of a business behind them. <laughs> I understand. So was was your dad talking to you about entrepreneurship, though? I mean, was someone laying out a, a career path, a, an academic career path, a working for a company career path? No, I mean, you know, it's interesting now. It, it, you know, back in the day, uh, he he was he he ran his own business, obviously his own practice. Um, but you know, I wasn't trained that way. I was trained as a big company. You know, I was a CPA, had a finance degree, was heading that direction. I uh, hated it, so I had to go out and try something new, and and uh, uh, kind of got hooked with the curse of, of trying to figure out a way to start a business that um, uh, that added enough value that I could get the applause from the market. Yeah. And uh, but you know, back to your point about you know uh, the 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 issue of of summing up these companies like yourself when we were all together. I mean, I, if you think about it. I had this enviable position of seeing business models across hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of businesses, many of them in the lower middle market. And so, uh, you know, the, the four M's, the, the market money management model patterns just emerge so clearly that I use that kind of as a pair of glasses when I look at a business. But uh, no, I can't, I can't reflect on any single thing that made me an, an entrepreneur I got uh, it. and uh, who knows? Well, uh, let's, let's talk about this, the concept of no man's land. I want to give a couple data points so people can begin to relate. Everyone is selfish in their, uh, you know, what's in it for me mindset. And I recognize human nature. So I want the audience to begin to understand that what we're talking about here, as you define no man's land is somewhere between five and 50 million in revenue. Correct me if you, if that number has changed and somewhere between say 20 and a hundred employees. Correct. That's on average. I actually was, was, uh, uh, created some data for the book from uh, Dr. David Birch, who was an MIT, uh, applied mathematician who actually built the first time series data base in the United States where they track every company in the United States for 20 years. That database uh, we've worked on for years now resides at the University of Wisconsin. So there are some very interesting things that happened during that particular transition. Now the revenues uh, uh, depend on the industry you're in. So for example, a construction company would have a lot more revenue per employee than let's say a uh, consulting firm but mm -hmm. that 20 to 100 employee transition uh you, if any of your audience is listening in on this they'll understand that there's something uniquely difficult about that transition and that's what i wrote about and and you know that's uh, you know as you know the data indicates that the that those companies are the economy heroes that's where all the net new job growth in the united states starts so uh that's where it came from. But but when the awareness of the entering into no man's land occurs, you know, you, you could put data, whether it's employee data or revenue data, but your argument is that the entrepreneur literally begins to feel the chaos that's creeping into the business, the control that the entrepreneur typically craves. They begin to lose that. And that's the start of no man's land. Would you agree with how I sort of sum that up? 
Yeah, that's excellent because we're all control freaks as entrepreneurs. Right. And they're told uh, that they got to let go of a business. My my premise is that you have to get more control of the business, but there's ways to do it. But you're exactly right. If you think about third grade soccer, you know, everybody's running around, the ball's moving down the field some way, somehow, and now all of a sudden you got to transition to where people are playing positions and um, – <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it is uh, a situation where the entrepreneur literally feels like, as you pointed out, that's probably the predominant, uh, symptom is they're going, you know, the levers I used to pull and push to move the business ahead aren't doing that anymore. Yeah. And so there's, you know, it gets very, very scary. You know, one thing you you talked about at Duke, which I thought was really interesting is you talk, and I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but you talked about your boys. I have three boys. And I remember you describing your boys. Are you three boys or four boys? No, I have three boys who are legendary crazy. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly where I'm going. I remember you describing your boys as crazy as crazy could be when they were growing up. Oh, yeah. Well, if we had another podcast, uh, I could sit and tell enough stories to make any group of parents out there feel better better about their teenage boys. <laughs> but and I will tell you, now, now that the frontal lobe is developed, which I'm not a psychologist, but I estimate it to be about 27 years old, uh, they, they, they are wonderful young men. But God knows getting them there was uh, is why I have gray hair or starting to get it anyway. But there was a piece of it that you loved. I could tell it. There was a piece of that crazy that you really embraced. I know it. Yeah, I did, but I'm not sure my wife did. So we'll, that's for another discussion. <laughs> All right. So you're, you, in, in many of your arguments, and one as we get closer to the end that I really want to drill down on, is that the companies have three choices. The first is they can turn back. from no, They start right. to enter no man's and they can turn back. They could sell the company or they could move forward and become what you call a category-defining company. Can we, can we stay on these three choices for a minute? Because I actually believe that the best choice is to turn back. And that is so countercultural now with everyone saying you got to be an entrepreneur, you got to grow. And I do believe in growth. But there does become a point where the next phase of growth is is just a, a recipe for disaster for most businesses, and the data proves that out. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the data that we keep, uh, the the number of companies that actually scale past 100 employees is frightfully small, probably less than three percent of all companies. Mm-hmm. So think about it this way: if, if you had, let's say, 18, 20 million companies in the United States. We're talking about 50,000, 60,000 companies that actually scale. So there, there's one example of what you're talking about. The second, and I, and I really appreciate you emphasizing this, um, you go to any business conference, and I speak at all of them, Inc., uh, ACG. I mean, I'm out there constantly. We do put you know, posters up on the wall and, and people on panels of, 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 of folks that have grown uh, large companies, and, and that's admirable. What we don't do enough of is talk about what I, my, my dear colleague, Bo Birmingham, wrote a book called Small Giants, uh, is these small giants that have elected and have found a niche in the marketplace. The business is built around their personal skills, uh, their management team, the people around them, uh, understand the owner's weaknesses and strengths, and that he understands or she understands their 
particular weaknesses and strengths, and they deliver a lot of value. Now, you can make a lot of money. Now, selling that business is a different value than if you can scale. Right now, the private equity markets have gone down to the point where if you get large enough, let's call it 25 to 30 million in revenues and two and a half million in EBITDA, then there, you know, there's, a, there's a bell to be rung there. But God help you if you don't have a value proposition and you don't get there, because you can stay in that in-between stage for many, many years and and and, um, and, it, and it not be very fun. No, absolutely nightmarish. And I'm not even so sure that it's even connected to $2.5 million EBITDA. I mean, you know, a person really has to define what is their lifestyle by design? What, what are they really doing all this thing called small business for? Because... Um, you know, if a guy can make a half a million dollars net profit to himself and not have all the headaches and the nightmare of going through no man's land, I believe for most people that is the better road. And, you know, we all hear it, like you were saying, grow. if you're not growing, you're dying, right? Yeah, well, it's not true. It's just not true. There is well, a middle ground that is that, that can be comfortable and... You can have a wonderful culture and happy customers and efficiencies in the organization, and you can just drop this requirement that I have to be massive. I agree. And, and, and let, me, let me tell you something. You know, you, if you think about it, back to your fundamental point that I think is excellent. Why are you doing this? Well, a lot of times you started businesses because you don't want to, you don't want to work for somebody else. You don't want to um, um, uh, have that that part well you know then you wake up one day and realize that oh oh crap i've got to be successful here because i got all these employees yeah. relying on me you know it's like the first time i had a young person come up to me in my earlier firm and introduced me to their wife to be and they're going to go out and buy a house and i'm going oh my gosh i mean he doesn't know whether he doesn't realize i might not be able to pay him in two months you know it's <laughs> it's it's a scary process but but then let me tell you something if you get the capital markets involved in your business and let me tell you i you know i was chairman of uh of, of an association that represents the vast majority of private equity investors in the united states i know that world i love it it's a great asset for this country but the minute you add them to your constituency then you've now added a whole nother responsibility, which means you got to sell the business. Yeah, there's got to be an exit. So um, I think the notion, if we can get, a, 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 you know, accomplish anything with our conversation today, for your listeners to sit back and think carefully about why they want to do something, and to put on the table that they can be highly successful, highly influential, make great money. Uh, and not grow themselves out of business, which is what my book's all about. So, you know, I have a I have a fundamental on this. Uh, you know, I, I wrote the book, uh, You Need More Money, which came out earlier this year. Penguin was the publisher of it. Yeah. And they made me take out this section where I tried to give a definition of what I consider to be good money or great money. And I, I argued with them, and they took it out anyway. But I say that life begins at 150 grand a year, life gets better at 250 grand, and life gets pretty doggone good at 500. And, and I actually believe those are reasonable milestones for most small business owners. Um, and I was trying to give some real life examples of here's really what I think reasonable or good money is. I want to ask you, though, in all the businesses that you've seen, and when you talk about good money or great money, let's talk about like net income that you're seeing to a business that doesn't 
feel the pressure of no man's land. What are you saying? What are you looking at? Well, you know, I uh, it, it's it's interesting because it, it, the the issue of the amount of money uh, being the appropriate, as you well know, uh, also has to do with the lifestyle against that. So. I've met entrepreneurs that can make a half a million bucks a year, but they need a million bucks a year, and that's not very fun. Uh, I've met I've met entrepreneurs that make one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and 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 they they've learned how to, to to do extremely well with that. So it's a that's one issue that we've got to put on the table. But I really think that the issue that drives the most pain is not the amount of money they make; it's what they end up having to do with their employees who become part of their family when they scale because the, you know when when you're when you're smaller everybody is in that business and and they trust each other around the concept of, of loyalty to you the entrepreneur and the business when you go to scale the ticket to your inner circle has to go from loyalty to performance which means some of the folks that you couldn't be in business with today, are not going to make that transition. You got to get rid of them. Yeah, that is enormously p- painful. Yeah, and uh, so uh, being happy or being satisfied with your performance as a business, if you can get over the fact that that you don't have to scale to some large company to be successful, then uh, it will create a lot of patience around all the other things you have to do to to stay boutique or what I call it human scale. And have and, and make money and have fun. It's the quandary. It's the quandary. Yes. It's the toughest thing for people to in business to figure out. I mean, there's a whole range of people who are just struggling to get a business that even pays them a reasonable amount to make it worth being in business versus going to work for somebody else. That's a whole large population. You're talking millions and millions of businesses, as we both know. But you're right. It's that next version of it where you have to decide: Am I going to be okay? Am I as a hard driving entrepreneur? Am I going to be okay with pulling the throttle back and saying, this is what it's going to be? Or am I going to be this very small, low single-digit percentage that says, I'm going to go for it? And I go back to the original argument, and I completely agree with you. Unfortunately, the data tells us most people shouldn't do that journey. Well, and, and as I outline in detail, as you well know, there's, there has to be certain components in the business that are in place in order to get to the next level, it's not just a decision. Yeah, <laughs> you can have you can have an entrepreneur with enormous talent, uh, almost uh, uh, you know infinite energy, but they don't have a value proposition that scales financially. And you cannot outwork bad strategy. You cannot outwork a lack of a value proposition that's scalable. And so you know it's a pretty analytical process to decide. Uh, so that's the other thing we need to relay. It's just not about, hey, I want to do it. It's about, do you have a business that can do it? And that's something that means you have to be radically objective. And hopefully um, we can get more f- folks to think about that. Yeah, so so that, that roadmap, that process, that structure that you're referencing are really what you call your four M's. They represent market, management, model, and money. Can we just take a minute and tap on each of those yeah, so market has to do with the value proposition. In other words, uh, businesses typically start because the entrepreneur is very, very good at something. And the question is, can the business become good at it, not the entrepreneur? 
And that means you've got to define what it is that your market is willing to pay you above your costs very, very carefully. And um, uh, a lot of times uh, it doesn't exist in a business. Effectively, the entrepreneur is the business. It's mm-hmm. They're the ones that people are actually buying, and they're surrounding themselves with a whole bunch of people to leverage them. So the first thing is identifying a value situ- situation, a value proposition that's scalable. Second is, is it economically scalable? You know, you, you take look, your example, a small advertising agency. A small advertising agency uh, led by a uniquely creative person can get large clients and do really well. The minute you start scaling and, and, and you run out of bandwidth with that individual, then you can't go to the next level. And so it, it, it falls apart because the customers aren't getting, you know, direct access to the, to the uh, entrepreneur. Uh, so the question is, do, do you really have something that financially makes more money when you get bigger? A lot of your companies out there, if they actually tested that notion, they're facing a situation where they have to step up their costs to such a level, step fixed costs we refer to it, that they won't make any money growing maybe for a while. Yeah. And then the third is the management. I talked about it earlier. Um, you have to speed up the decision-making process and you have to lower the risk of those decision-making processes. And if your management team around you, I mean, what do all of us as entrepreneurs do when we can't afford to pay somebody? We give them titles, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're the CFO. Well, they're not really a CFO. They're an assistant <laughs> controller. Oh, it's you know, so true. You're the vi- vice president of sales. You're not really a vice president of sales. You never built a channel, but you're my best salesperson. And so <laughs> to keep you there, I give you a title. The problem is that currency, when you try to take it away, it doesn't work. And what you have to do is bring in people who actually have been there and done that because by having somebody there, that's been there and done that in your industry at a bigger company, you shorten the decision cycles and lower the risk, which means they replace somebody that's in your inner circle, and that's very painful. And then finally, the money. The reality of it is is that uh, when you start looking to the capital markets, right now most uh, owner-operator entrepreneurs can get capital to the extent of their personal net worth. Mm-hmm. The minute that business needs more money than that individual can repay, the capital markets are tough to deal with until you get bigger. And uh, navigating that transition when it's tough to get capital is a whole different ballgame. And the key is lowering risk. We get up every morning in our businesses, as you well know, and you have to think about what the potential of the business is. The capital markets, even the equity markets, it takes about two seconds to figure out the potential. They just don't know the risks. And if you don't de-risk the business, you'll never get capital. And part of de-risking it is the type of management you're going to track to it. And that's a tough, tough transition. Well, the other component to the, to the money and to the management is um, at some point you're going to have to pay up. And to pay up for that world-class management, if that's what it is, which is the evolution of, of getting through no man's land, and now you got to roll the dice. So maybe maybe the owner has to go home to his wife and say, "I know, I know you like the lifestyle we provided, baby, but but it's going to take three hundred grand a year for me to get this guy, which means we may end up making fifty or a hundred grand less for the next twelve months, 
And, and the spouse might say, uh-uh, don't like that idea. Just leave it the way it is, which is a real fight for the entrepreneur. He says, he says, I can't take the step back to take two steps forward because I don't have the support at home. Or maybe I can't take the pay cut to hire this guy. Or maybe I'm terrified that if I hire this guy and pay him and six months down the road, he's a failure. I just wasted 80 grand that we shouldn't have wasted. Yeah, and, and you know, sometimes you make it even more complicated. You have to you get the right people. You have to open up the cap structure, which means you got to share ownership. Yeah. But I tell you, an even more difficult conversation that this, this, a lot of these entrepreneurs have to go home and talk about is uh, uh, Charlie Jr. is not a chip off the old block. <laughs> and and the, he's he, your son, our son, isn't going to survive in this environment if we take it to the next level. Now, what do you do then? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is a very difficult scenario. And, you know, we, uh, our, the po- points that we're trying to make is that you need to stand back and get strategic and objective yeah. about what you have before you just grow for growth's sake. Yeah. You know, uh, I, so many businesses out there. I've literally counseled, and they say, well, how, how do I get there? And I said, well, let's start by firing your biggest customer. Yeah. They yeah. go, what? Yeah. Say, <laughs> so, yeah, your biggest customer is a one-off. It's not a value proposition you can scale. It's eating the bandwidth of your organization. You'd make more money smaller. Yeah. Yeah, boy, we see that. I mean, I, I have to go back to the blue-collar examples that we're in, but – but we have a lot of companies that are more profitable at 10 trucks than they are at 40 trucks. You got it. There's a gap there. In fact, we pull data all the time to show these what I call no profit zones. And, I, you know, I remember one that I, I wrote about, and it was a family company. And this poor guy would have been better off taking on private equity and doing an acquisition or actually selling than trying to finance through a gap Mm -hmm. where nobody between 25 and 50 million dollars in the industry which was freight forwarding at the time made any money yeah and the reason is they had to gear up if you were in one port right you could make money because you knew every secretary and every official and you had you know uh you know you're on the the georgia coast and you had uh, augusta you had uh, master's tickets you could get anything done you know, you go to multiple ports and you had to create a huge IT infrastructure, yeah. millions of dollars to compete with the bigger guys. Yes. And so they didn't think about that. And they got right in the middle of that. And this poor guy is a family company. He's in the fourth generation. Mm. Every every aunt in that town was living off that business. And they're looking at him like, well, you know, your dad got it through, you know, your granddad got it through the Second World War. What's your problem? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It was it was it was tough, and he had wished like crap that he had thought about that before he had moved on and just just to grow without oh. thinking about yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so difficult. So as as we bring it to a close, Doug, here's the thing that I think is the is a disservice that is being done, and it's a it's this movement that occurred after your book was written. It's the social media movement in which the idea of entrepreneurship has become so cool and, and avant-garde that everybody thinks it's the, it's the natural progression of a hustler, right? Or a grinder or a gritty person. you got to become an entrepreneur. And I argue that most people should not be an entrepreneur and that most companies should move to an intrapreneur type of an environment where people within the organization can have an entrepreneurial flavor, but they get the 
benefits of the umbrella and big brother behind them. How do you feel about this entrepreneur versus entrepreneur movement? Well, you know, that, that's a long cigar. Uh, that, that's, that's for, for, but, but I, you know, I did a speech years ago, uh, with the heads of R and D for the fortune, uh, 1000. And, uh, I thought they were going to throw me out of the room, but I basically stood up and said, you guys cannot, uh, recreate an entrepreneurial ecosystem, get to know the head of your M and A. So what's happening right now is larger companies find it very, very difficult to create an entrepreneurial environment and they lose their ideas. And so they get them back through acquisition. Hmm. What's really going on is large companies get their R and D now through acquisition. I was correct. Uh, the notion of, of, of being an entrepreneur, I think is a function of the fact that, that modern management practices, as we move away from what was taught in business schools, uh, over the years, it will, they will find very quickly that uh, that pushing decisions down uh, closer to the bottom of the organization, allowing the authority for those decisions to be made, how they figure out how to do that will uh, allows rapid adjustments to the markets. That's going on, and that allows employees to feel more in charge of what they're doing. And the companies that do that well are going to kick everybody's rear end mm, mm. and that's happening. So mm. if, if that's your definition of an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, then I think that's going to happen as the management styles change. Got it. But the notion that you got to go out and start a business from scratch, uh, to be successful doesn't make sense. And I've, I've told many, many of my students where I teach in a school of entrepreneurship, you know, you don't have to be, you know, there's nothing wrong with being the fifth employee in a, in, in, in a company that, that turns out to grow very rapidly. That's a really good thing. And being entrepreneurial about how you help that company grow, which you would call entrepreneurship, is very important. The other thing I talk about is, uh, is um, franchises. You know, you don't have to recreate uh, a, a successful model. God knows how many of us wish we had gotten a hold of some really cool franchises when they were early on. Well, uh, I agree completely with you. I mean, the number two guy at Facebook who's worth a couple billion dollars is not a household name. Nobody's ever heard of him, and he's correct. perfectly comfortable with that, right? Yeah. In fact, the number 500 is probably done pretty well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly my point. And yet, unfortunately, so many of us are in business for ourselves for whatever they, we think that reward is. And the reality is if you put the, the pencil to the paper, it's probably better to be working for somebody else. And that, unfortunately, is the state of small business for a lot of people. Yeah. So not, every, not everybody needs to be running around uh, wearing a black turtleneck. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Doug, listen, it is, it's been a pleasure. I mean, again, it is, it, it, we could go on forever about it. I appreciate you taking time for us today. I wish you safe travels. I can't wait to see you. I know Jane mentioned to me that, you're going to be down in San Antonio, and I may actually just jump in the car and head on down there to visit with you and watch you. Oh, I'd love love to see you there. I'll bring a cigar and um, and we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll smoke one together. But yeah, I'm going to do a speech down at uh, Association for Corporate Growth down in San Antonio. So if you can get down there, I look forward to it. And I appreciate what you're doing. So thanks a lot, Doug. Onward and upwards. I'll see you down the road, my friend. I appreciate you very much. As well. All right. Take care of yourself. Bye. 
That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money. <laughs>